when I published Ulysses by James Joyce in my little bookshop called Shakespeare and Company in Paris. Look, look, the dust is growing. My branches lost Lord James. Stately, plump, buck bargain. All perfume, yes, and his heart was going like mad. And yes, I said yes, I will, yes. Friends of Shakespeare and Company read Ulysses by James Joyce. Read today by Jesse Ball. Mr. Bloom promptly did as suggested and removed the incriminated article, a blunt, horn-handled, ordinary knife with nothing particularly Roman or antique about it to the lay eye, observing that the point was the least conspicuous point about it. Our mutual friend's stories are like himself, Mr. Bloom, apropos of knives, remarked his confidant, sotto voce. Do you think they're genuine? He could spin those yarns for hours on end all night long and lie like old boots. Look at him. Yet still, though his eyes were thick with sleep and sea air, life was full of a host of things and coincidences of a terrible nature, and it was quite within the bounds of possibility that it was not an entire fabrication, though at first blush there was not much inherent probability in all the spoof he had got off his chest, being strictly accurate gospel. He had been meantime taking stock of the individual in front of him and Sherlock Holmesing him up, ever since he clapped eyes on him. Though a well-preserved man of no little stamina, if a trifle prone to baldness, there was something spurious in the cut of his jib that suggested a jail delivery, and it required no violent stretch of imagination to associate such a weird-looking specimen with the oakum and treadmill fraternity. He might even have done for his man, supposing it was his own case, he told, as people often did about others, namely that he killed him himself and had served his four or five good-looking years in durance vile, to say nothing of the Antonio personage, no relation to the dramatic personage of identical name who sprang from the pen of our national poet, who expiated his crimes in the melodramatic matter above described. On the other hand, he might be only bluffing, a pardonable weakness, because meeting unmistakable mugs, Dublin residents, like those Jarvies waiting news from abroad, would tempt any ancient mariner who sailed the ocean seas to draw the long bow about the schooner Hesperus and etc. And when all was said and done, the lies a fellow told about himself couldn't probably hold a proverbial candle to the wholesale whoppers other fellows coined about him. Mind you, I'm not saying that it's all a pure invention, he presumed. Analogous scenes are occasionally, if not often, met with. Giants, though, that is rather a far cry, you see, once in a way. Marcella, the midget queen. In those waxworks in Henry Street, I myself saw some Aztecs, as they are called, sitting bow-legged. They couldn't straighten their legs if you paid them, because the muscles here, you see, he proceeded, indicating on his companion the brief outline, the sinews, or whatever you like to call them behind the right knee were utterly powerless from sitting that way so long cramped up being adored as gods there's an example again of simple souls however reverting to friend sinbad and his horrifying adventures who reminded him a bit of ludwig alias ledwidge when he occupied the boards of the gaiety when michael gunn was identified with the management in the flying dutchman a stupendous success and his host of admirers came in large numbers everyone simply flocking to hear him though ships of any sort phantom or the reverse on the stage usually fell a bit flat as also did trains there was nothing intrinsically incompatible about it he conceded 
On the contrary, that stab in the back touch was quite in keeping with those Italianos, though candidly he was nonetheless free to admit those ice creamers and fryers in the fish way, not to mention the chip potato variety and so forth over in Little Italy there near the coom were sober, thrifty, hard-working fellows, except perhaps a bit too given to pot-hunting the harmless necessary animal of the feline persuasion of others at night, so as to have a good old succulent tuck in with garlic de rigueur off him or her next day on the quiet, and, he added, on the cheap. Spaniards, for instance, he continued, passionate temperaments like that, impetuous as old Nick, are given to taking the law into their own hands and give you your quietest double-quick with those poniards they carry in the abdomen. It comes from the great heat, climate generally. My wife is, so to speak, Spanish, half that is. Point of fact, she could actually claim Spanish nationality if she wanted, having been born in, technically, Spain, i.e. Gibraltar. She has the Spanish type, quite dark, regular brunette, black. I, for one, certainly believe climate accounts for character. That's why I asked you if you wrote your poetry in Italian. The temperaments at the door, Stephen interposed with, were very passionate about ten shillings. Roberto, Ruba, Roba, Sua. Quite so, Mr. Bloom dittoed. Then, Stephen said, staring and rambling on to himself or some unknown listener somewhere, we have the impetuosity of Dante in the isosceles triangle, Miss Portinari he fell in love with, and Leonardo and Santa Mastino. It's in the blood. Mr. Bloom acceded at once. All are washed in the blood of the sun. Coincidence, I just happened to be in the Kildare Street Museum today, shortly prior to our meeting, if I can so call it. And I was just looking at those antique statues there, the splendid proportions of hips, bosom. You simply don't knock against those kinds of women here. An exception here, and they're handsome. Yes, pretty in a way you find, but what I'm talking about is the female form. Besides, they have so little taste in dress, most of them, which greatly enhances a woman's natural beauty, no matter what you say. Rumpled stockings, it may be, possibly, is a foible of mine, but still it's a thing I simply hate to see. Interest, however, was starting to flag somewhat all around, and the others got on to talking about accidents at sea, ships lost in a fog, collisions with icebergs, all that sort of thing. Ship Ahoy, of course, had his own say to say. He had doubled the cape a few odd times and weathered a monsoon, a kind of wind, in the China seas, and through all those perils of the deep there was one thing he declared stood to him, or words to that effect, a pious medal he had that saved him. So then after that they drifted on to the wreck of Daunt's Rock, wreck of that ill-fated Norwegian bark. Nobody could think of her name for the moment till the Jarvie, who had really quite a look of Henry Campbell, remembered it. Palm on Booderston Strand. That was the talk of the town that year. Albert William Quill wrote a fine piece of original verse of distinctive merit on the topic for the Irish Times. Breakers running over her and crowds and crowds on the shore and commotion petrified with horror. And someone said something about the case of the SS Lady Cairns of Swansea, run into by the Mona, which was on the opposite tack in rather muggyish weather and lost with all hands on deck. No aid was given. Her master, the Monas, said he was afraid his collision bulkhead would give way. She had no water, it appears, in her hold. At this stage, an incident happened. It having become necessary for him to unfurl a reef, the sailor vacated his seat. Let me cross your bows, mate, he said to his neighbor, who was just gently dropping off into a peaceful doze. He made tracks heavily, slowly, with a dumpy sort of a gate to the door, stepped heavily down the one step there was out of the shelter, and bore due left. 
While he was in the act of getting his bearings, Mr. Bloom, who noticed when he stood up that he had two flasks of presumably ship's rum sticking, one out of each pocket for the private consumption of his burning interior, saw him produce a bottle and uncork it or unscrew and applying its nozzle to his lips, take a good old delectable swig out of it with a gurgling noise. The irrepressible Bloom, who also had a shrewd suspicion that the old stager went out on a maneuver after the counter-attraction in the shape of a female, who, however, had disappeared to all intents and purposes, could by straining just to perceive him when duly refreshed by his rum punch and exploit, gazing up at the piers and girders of the loop line rather out of his depth, as of course it was all radically altered since his last visit and greatly improved. Some person or persons invisible directed him to the male urinal erected by the cleansing committee all over the place for the purpose, but after a brief space of time during which silence reigned supreme, the sailor, evidently giving it a wide berth, eased himself close at hand, the noise of his bilgewater some little time subsequently splashing on the ground, where it apparently woke a horse at the cabrank. A hoof scooped anyway for a new foothold after sleep and harness jingled. Slightly disturbed in his sentry box by the brazier of live coke, the watcher of the corporation, who, though now broken down and fast breaking up, was none other in stern reality than the gumly aforesaid, now practically on the parish rates, given the temporary job by Pat Tobin in all human probability, from dictates of humanity knowing him before, shifted about and shuffled in his box before composing his limbs again in the arms of Morpheus. A truly amazing piece of hard times in its most virulent form, and a fellow most respectably connected and familiarized with decent home comforts all his life, who came in for a cool one hundred pound a year at one time, which, of course, the double-barreled ass proceeded to make general ducks and drakes of. And there he was, at the end of his tether, after having often painted the town tolerably pink without a beggarly steve-room. He drank, needless to be told, and it pointed only once more a moral, when he might quite easily be in a large way of business, if, a big if, however, he had contrived to cure himself of his particular partiality. All meantime were loudly lamenting the falling off in Irish shipping, coat-wise and foreign as well, which was all part and parcel of the same thing. A Palgrave Murphy boat was put off the ways at Alexandra Basin, the only launch that year. Right enough, the harbors were there, only no ships ever called. There were wrecks and wrecks, the keeper said, who was evidently au fait. What he wanted to ascertain was why that ship ran bang against the only rock in Galway Bay when the Galway Harbor scheme was mooted by Mr. Worthington or some name like that, eh? Ask her captain, he advised them, how much palm oil the British government gave him for that day's work. Captain John Lever of the Lever Line. Am I right, skipper? he queried of the sailor now returning after his private potation and the rest of his exertions. That worthy, picking up the scent of the fag end of the song or words, growled in would-be music, but with great vim, some kind of chanty or other in second or thirds. Mr. Bloom's sharp ears heard him then expectorate the plug, probably, which it was, so that he must have lodged it for the time being in his fist while he did the drinking and making water jobs and found it a bit sour after the liquid fire in question. Anyhow, when he rolled after his successful libation compotation, introducing an atmosphere of drink into the soiree, boisterously trolling like a veritable son of a sea cook. The biscuits was as hard as brass, and the beef as salt as Lot's wife's ass. Oh, Johnny Lever, Johnny Lever, oh. After which effusion, the redoubtable specimen duly arrived on the scene, and regaining his seat, he sank rather than sat heavily on the form provided.